0: This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. For our hot question of the day today, we are looking towards the end of this week because for many, many people out there, there's just one thing going on on Friday, and that is... Shopping because yes, it is Black Friday sales that are going to be happening. And in recent years, and I've really noticed this in my time of work here, working like right in downtown Vancouver. When I first started working downtown, the biggest day of the year was Boxing Day. I remember actually working my first Boxing Day here at the station, must have been, I guess, Boxing Day of 2010. So December 26, 2010 or 2011 yeah, no, 2010. And I couldn't even get into the parkade downstairs because there were so many cars driving in and getting there that there was just no way for me to even park the car. I had to go home and get a ride, get a ride back to work. That doesn't happen as much anymore on Boxing Day because a lot of the focus has now gone to Black Friday. Rather than going down to the States on Black Friday, Canadian retailers have decided to get in on this action, which means that even in Canada now, Black Friday is a huge shopping day. And it's coming up day after tomorrow. So we thought we'd get the temperature of consumers out there. Wondering if you plan on taking part in any Black Friday sales this year, like online, are you going to head to the mall? Or are you just looking to see maybe what the deals are going to be? Because, It's a good time to get some Christmas shopping done if you're one of those people. So that's our hot question of the day today. Do you plan on taking part in any of these Black Friday sales that are going on this year? Will you even check them out? Because you go, yeah, I got to save these dollars, right? Got to save some money. Got to get the sales while I can. Or do you think, no way, this is just like consumerism gone mad. Because believe me, that's also a very good argument. When you see some of the craziness that goes on on Black Friday, nothing. As a kid, I would stand in line. You know, as a kid on Boxing Day, It was like a rite of passage to go stand in line at A&B Sound and get their doorbuster sale. That was like a great thing. As an adult now, I think it would practically have to be free to make me show up and do that and go and participate in all the craziness out there. But how about you? Do you plan on taking part in any Black Friday sales this year? Yes or no? Let us know. Uh, You can cast your vote online. Go to SimiSara980 or at cknw cast your vote there. You can also email me, send me at cknw.com. What is your modus operandi for dealing with these sales? Like, do you go online to kind of suss things out and see what things are going to be on sale and then you go to the store and check it out? Are you one of the doorbuster people where you got to be there because you want that first, you know, 10 items that are heavily discounted? How do you approach this or do you just stay home and think that everybody else is crazy? Maybe that's how you're going to approach Black Friday this year.
1: so with some breaking news. Metro Vancouver bus and C-bus workers are
0: officially on strike.
2: Talks remain stalled in the ongoing transit strike, and the
3: province says it will not intervene. This is
4: day 12 of the job this action. This is day 13 bus bus of job action by unionized well, workers. Well, the
3: transit the strike Mountain is, is now into the second week.
4: This is day 19. This is the day job 25, action. day 26 of the job action by 5,000 workers at the Coast Mountain
3: Bus Company.
0: And of course, this is day 27 of the transit strike, but at a half hour after midnight that tentative deal averted the full-scale strike that people had been so afraid of that would have happened by bus drivers, sea bus operators, and mechanics at the Coast Mountain Bus Company. So we know it didn't happen, and that is good news for a lot of people out there, but now there's lots of questions about, well, how did they manage to get this done? Now, Unifor isn't releasing any details of the deal until its members hold ratification meetings, but we wanted to get a bit of a scene-setter about what went on last night. Was there something... How did the dam break, essentially? Joining us now is Gavin McGarigal, the Western Regional Director of Unifor. Gavin, thanks for being with us. Yeah, hi, Sammy. I understand you've probably only had a couple of hours sleep at this point.
5: Yeah, I think about four hours. Uh, We reached the deal uh, around 12.30 last night, uh, but uh, both teams spent a couple of hours making sure that we finalized the details of the memorandum of agreement, and I think we finally signed it off around uh, quarter after five this morning.
0: And how are you feeling about the deal right now?
5: well i'm feeling um i'm feeling uh, relieved on behalf of our members and the uh, and the passengers that we serve that we reached a tentative agreement we always said direct uh negotiations uh, when both parties were serious was the way to to get it done and of course it'll be up to our members to decide uh but our our team is um unanimously recommending the deal. And, and we feel good that, uh, you know, we've, uh, we've taken significant steps to address the issues that our members sent us to deal with.
0: Now, what changed on all of this? Like when yesterday, going back to the table, it was pretty clear there was a different mood in the air. There was, seemed like a lot more determination to get a deal done.
5: Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, we were uh, determined to get a deal done. I mean, we know that the public uh, had sent in thousands of messages of support. We know that the student societies had reached out to us. We know that our picket captains were getting ready for uh, strike action. Uh, We know that uh, our national president was in the room. It was very clear. Uh, that uh, we were determined to reach a deal and, uh, you know, so this was the 11th hour, this was the time to make the moves that were necessary and, uh, you know, it was hard work uh, but we're pleased we managed to manage to break through and get it done.
0: Was there give and take?
5: There's always give and take in negotiations. Um, the key, the key at the end of the day for us is making sure that, you know, whatever whatever uh, moves we we're making will gain the support of our elected bargaining committee and ultimately our membership. So, Um, You know, there's certainly uh, always movement. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, we have to make sure that uh, that we can gain the support of our membership on any agreement.
0: What does this tell us, do you think, Gavin, as well, about the state of transit in our region? Because it's clear there was a lot of panic at the idea of just of a three-day shutdown.
5: Well, that's what we've been saying all along: is that the transit system is so important. I mean, our members deal with the public every day; uh, they deal with uh, with the passengers. They know what they're going through. We've been a strong advocate of transit expansion, precisely because we know uh, how important it is. And so, you know, but at the end of the day, workers have a constitutional right to. Collectively bargain and to strike. And, you know, we certainly appreciate uh, the provincial government uh, taking that hands off approach because that's ultimately what puts the pressure on both parties to reach a deal. Uh, You know, the BC Liberals simply wanted to uh, take away our rights and rip up contracts, which was their sorry legacy for the past 16 years. And and that's not going to get it done. At the end of the day, uh, hard bargaining is hard bargaining, and, and there's a reason why it's set up the way it is. So, it's a very important system. We knew that. The employer knew that. And we knew that, uh, you know, we had to work very hard uh, on behalf of, you know, our members for, from our side and, of course, the public uh, to make sure that, that we rolled up our and got it done. Free collective bargaining works. And um, I think this is living proof of that.
0: How long? Can you tell us how long the deal is, the duration?
5: No, sir, I'm sorry. I can't discuss any details. Our members have, have the right to see see those details first right. before we discuss them in the media, yeah.
0: Okay. And what's the timeline for ratification then? Showing it to them, when them will when will that vote happen?
5: Uh really we're looking around for venues uh, right now and uh you know to determine uh, when we can do that, but I expect it'll probably be in the next uh week or 10 days or so. We're just uh, I think people are just getting some rest this morning and um, and then we'll, you know, that'll be our next step is to move to a secure a venue and, and figure out a date that our members can vote on this.
0: All right, and then until that time, then everything is back to normal.
5: Yes, we uh, gave instructions to our members to return to work as best they could this morning. Uh, you know, because of the timings, it was difficult for some. But uh, back to wearing the uniforms, no maintenance ban, no overtime ban, uh, back to business as usual, and, and then our members will decide uh, whether or not they support the agreement. Um, and, uh, you know, that's their right. And, you know, all the people in the room who were there, I mean, of course, Jerry and I were there, but ultimately, uh, we have elected bargaining committees that are elected by the membership. And ultimately, they're the ones that, that make the decisions. So, um, you know, we have to make sure that we're, we're responding to what our members tell us is important.
0: All right. Listen, thank you very much for your time. Get some sleep.
5: All right. Thanks, Jimmy.
0: That's Gavin McGarrigal, the Western Regional Director of Unifor, telling us what he can at this point of how things went last night. Tentative deal reached uh, about 12.30 last night, so just about half hour past that deadline. Uh, they did extend that because they were making progress at that point. But as you also heard Gavin McGarigal say, by the time they finished signing everything, getting the legal language done, he, he was there until about 5 this morning. So. Yeah, busy day. We don't know what's in the deal, but they will be taking it to their members for that ratification vote. And that will happen, as he said, in the next week to 10 days. But you know, the mood was definitely different. I mean, even 24 hours ago, as we were sitting here talking to you, we definitely had that sense, right? We were talking about that, that the kind of heavy hitters were in town there. They had the head of Unifor, Jerry Diaz was there. Kevin Desmond, the CEO of TransLink was also there. And it was kind of do or die time. We want to get a sense though of what the the mood was also like, like, what did we see from the outside looking in? So, joining us now is Global News senior reporter Janet Brown, who was camped out there all day yesterday. Hi, Janet.
3: Hi Simmy. Uh yes, Mr. McGarigal sounded very tired and there's a lot of tired reporters today as well uh sitting around the hotel, uh, you know, waiting to report on the latest movement. And as you say, yeah, it's very interesting to watch these talks unfold uh from a distance. You know, we have the union in one room, we have Coast Mountain, the company. In another room, and then they hunker down, they talk among themselves, they get their proposals, counter proposals together, and then they all leave as a group to march into one common meeting room to discuss those ideas, proposals, etc. And then they go back to their room to discuss it in private. And uh yesterday, it started out at 11.30 in the morning with the union having a media availability. And, um, you know, they brought out the big guns. They had Jerry Diaz there, the Unifor Union national president. He was brought into the talks yesterday, and he addressed the media yesterday. And, you know, he wasn't sounding very optimistic yesterday morning, Simi, as you say. He said, uh, quote, negotiations around wages are presenting a significant challenge. And he said... Um, uh, they were making some headway but they were far from quote there so clearly they had a long ways to go yesterday morning and he said the differences right now are significant. So clearly they made a lot of progress during the day. And then something else interesting happened at the noon hour, which I found very unusual, very rare. Uh, TransLink CEO Kevin Desmond and again, Mr. Diaz met together face to face. And it was a it was a short meeting. And uh, Mr. Desmond came out of that meeting to talk to reporters at about 1230. He really didn't say very much. He said uh, that they, quote, we had a good initial conversation. So, you know, I took that as positive, at least it wasn't negative. And then away they went, and the negotiations started at 2 p.m. But at 2 p.m., they were hunkered down in their rooms. There was really not a lot of movement going on till mm-hmm. around four o'clock. So clearly they were discussing among themselves in their separate rooms, the union and the company, I, I, I suppose, what they were going to present to each other. But then, you know, after four o'clock, things seemed to pick up. There was a lot of walking back and forth in the hallway, uh, between these various rooms. So clearly things were starting to progress. That was my, that was my read on things. Yeah. And, you know, another thing as a reporter, we we don't only talk to people, but we we read body language, just like everybody does out there, right? Yeah. And, you know, facial expressions and that sort of thing. And, you know, I was looking at these uh, union folks, and they were kind of rolling their eyes and, you know, nodding their head back and forth. And I thought, oh, gosh, you know, I don't know. I don't know if things are going that well. You just try to get a feel for it as a reporter, you know? Yeah. And, uh I just didn't have a really good feeling, to tell you the truth, when I was leaving the talks at 5 o'clock and before another reporter came in to relieve me, I just honestly did not have a good feeling at 5 o'clock. However, uh, that being said, I knew that as long as they were still in that hotel and still meeting face-to-face, there was a chance that we could get a tentative agreement. That's always a good thing when they're still meeting and... Um, so yeah. yeah, I was really happy to hear that they were still meeting last night. And, and and then that's when my hopes started to pick up. Well, they're still meeting and it's 1130 at night. Yeah. And I really couldn't put down my phone and, and stop watching Twitter because I was just waiting uh, to hear what was happening. So I knew at 1130 last night when they were still talking, they were working really hard to try and get a deal because both sides knew that they had a lot to lose if they didn't get a deal last night. Because w- when the two sides in any round of bargaining, negotiations can't get a deal, they risk the chance of a mediator being appointed. That's right. And when a mediator steps into labor talks, neither side wins. And they both knew that, that they didn't want a mediator coming in. So they knew it was up to them to get a deal done. And the other problem is both sides were afraid to to lose the support of the public too, because no buses for three days, no sea so. buses. The union knew that that was going to really be bad for the traveling public. And, and it could backfire on them too. So there was a whole lot at stake yesterday And I was so happy to wake up this morning and and find out that a tentative deal had been done, Simi, Uh, for everybody's sake in in this. So true. The the workers, the company and the traveling public.
0: So true. Janet, thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you, Simi. That is Global News senior reporter Janet Brown. You know, she's absolutely right on this in that. It is you, the general public, that made the difference in getting this dispute done. We had a very lively discussion yesterday about the issue of property taxes. All over BC right now, municipal governments are doing the job of working through their draft proposal budgets, figuring out what the property taxes are going to be for 2020. City of Vancouver certainly raising some eyebrows with their draft budget because in it says they are considering a 9.3% hike in taxes and fees as part of their 2020 budget. That is a big jump, one of the biggest we have seen in something like 10 years. And the 9.3% is a combination of an 8.2% property tax hike and a 9.5% utility fee hike. It also includes a 0.5% tax shift from businesses to residential properties. Naturally, we had a lot of questions when we first heard this because that is an eye-opening large number, right? So on yesterday's show, we had a chance to speak with Vancouver City Councilor Adrienne Carr who explained why she feels this tax increase is necessary.
6: Nobody likes tax increases, but um, but, on the other hand, Sammy, nobody likes to see the homelessness, the opioid crisis, the inability to find uh, an apartment or home that you can afford um, the, the street trees dying, overcrowded facilities, deterioration of of roads, um, not being able to tackle climate change the way we should, so really, this budget is about making sure we put the money in place to handle what are really emerging crises. And in part, um, because over the last 10 years, the tax increases have been um, not as high. That doesn't work if you're not putting the money into keeping the actual essential services um, and the infrastructure of the city going. And now this council has to deal with it.
0: All right. Now, I found that ironic as well, because Adrian Carr was on council for the last 10 years. She's been there since 2011 and I don't remember hearing her advocate for higher property taxes during that time. So this is a big pill for Vancouver residents to swallow. And if you're not a property owner and you think, oh, it doesn't affect you once again, I'm going to point out it still does. If you're a renter, somehow those costs will get passed on to you as well because your landlord, the property owner, or the place where you live, they have to pay for that as well. They will look to you to help them offset those costs. So not every councillor, though, is on board with this. So we thought, let's talk a little bit more about it now. Sarah Kirby-Young joins us, also a Vancouver City councillor. Thank you very much for being here. Good morning, Simi. What is your take on this proposed hike?
2: Well, my take is very different from Councillor Carr's. I think it's excessive. It's the highest uh, increase, as you said, in 10 years. And I think that uh, trying to make the argument, well, it's only this much per household or, you know, we have a lot of things we need to spend money on. So everybody has a lot of things they need to spend money on. And sometimes we need to look at priorities um, and try to keep it reasonable. People are feeling burdened. So they're not just going to be seeing increases from the city of Vancouver and property taxes and then the utility fees that come through from Metro Vancouver. They're seeing their car insurance go up. They're seeing their cost of living go up. Um, And their salaries are not going up an average of 9.3%, not last time I checked.
0: Uh, No, nobody's is going up by 9.3%. So uh, what does that mean then? Is this going to be hotly debated? Is this going to get passed? What is this process like?
2: Um, I think it's going to be a very hotly debated budget. I think that uh, this council has been in for a year now. Um, And when we came in and had about just under a month before the budget process, and you tend to inherit... Um, the budget the first year the council This is really, I think, a defining budget for this council in terms of are we going to try to set a reasonable increase for the next several years that we have in this term? Um, or are we going to commit to a more, a much higher and unsustainable level of tax? Um, and I don't think that we should. I think there's going to be, going to be very hotly debated coming in, but I would also say that this council has brought forward so many motions over the past year that have come from a number of counselors and they all come with price tags and costs. They have hard costs attached to them. They have new staff hires attached to them. Um, and if we're really serious about some of the core issues, we wouldn't be adding to the affordability crisis by creating new projects and costs that, that are not quite honestly. They're they're not all equal priorities. We actually have to prioritize and choose.
0: This is what I was wondering as well, is that, like, do we not look at what we're doing already and think, okay, what can we cut? Like, why just say, oh, we need to do this without saying, yeah, I think we can live without some of these other items?
2: Yeah, I haven't seen that. Um, I and some of my fellow councillors have tried to be voices for that, uh, to say, look, what is it that, you know, where can we find some efficiencies or what can we stop doing? Do we not do some projects? Do we delay the timeline of some projects? Are some areas less important than others? And there hasn't been as much of an appetite um, for that conversation. So we got the budget that we did. um, And I think it's going to come down to that debate in the council chamber and who's actually standing up for affordability. I find it really ironic that council spent the entire day yesterday talking about how to um, deliver more rental housing in the city and get more units in so that we can improve access to um, secure rental and affordability, and at the same time, we are proposing this punitive high tax increase that's going to deter people from actually building rental projects because they can't absorb those costs. So we're working at odds and at cross purposes and we need to get a bit real and get honest about that conversation.
0: I'm also wondering too, some of the things that I've been you know following along with council and and talking about and even the things that I heard Councillor Carr talk about, some of a lot of those are provincial responsibilities. Why is the city of Vancouver taking so much of this on?
2: That's a great question. That's exactly the question I'd like uh, I'd like my fellow councillors to to ask and to think about because from my perspective, and it may not be popular, but if you look at the Vancouver Charter, what is a municipal government tasked to do legally? It is roads and sewers and utilities and police and fire um, and land management in terms of zoning and density and um, a lot of livability aspects, public space. Certainly those are all core. So I think that's where we start. And then we look at what else we need to do. I think that when you hear um, Councillor Carr, for example, say that, well, we've had historic levels of investment from the provincial government in housing. Well, great. Is that an opportunity for the city of Vancouver not to do that? Because we've stepped into a lot of areas, health, the opioid crisis, housing, um, got a lot of work happening in terms of um, developing things like equity frameworks for underrepresented groups in the city. All great work and all important, but not what has traditionally been the mandate of the city.
0: Right. Is it possible, though, to deliver the increased number of police officers and firefighters that are asked for in this budget uh, without this increase? Because I think that, for people, go they do would like to, they would like to see those kinds of resources. How do we yeah, balance I hear,
2: that? I hear from this, the one thing that I do hear a lot is um, from from throughout our neighborhoods and our business owners um, and residents throughout the city is the you know they're really feeling the impacts of the huge social challenges and the opioid crisis that we have, um, and that's not being able to get deliveries to their businesses in Chinatown um, and their staff not feeling safe or being attacked when they're going out at lunch. And those are serious. So there is a good rationale for police officers. It's not possible to deliver more police and fire officers without an increase in property tax, but it does not have to be um,
0: 8.2%. All right. And and so what is the process like here? What do you think is going to happen?
2: Uh, I think that, uh, well, it's a two-part process. So on December 3rd coming up, council will receive this, budget or draft budget um officially in a special council meeting members of the public can come and speak to it and i would encourage people to come if you think that this is unsustainable and it's it's too high and the city needs to focus on core priorities come and say that um and then the following week then council has its debate at which point council can accept it vote against the budget try to go for lower increase cut things out of the budget council could say that no we want more time we want to send it back Um, that's a strategy. So all of those options are available, and I I think it's going to be a pretty dynamic time.
0: Oh, yeah, it certainly will be. One more thing I wanted to ask you about. This has to do with something in the news today. We're hearing that the Tri-Cities, those three, Port Moody, Coquitlam, and Port Moody, have gotten together on the ride-hailing issue, and they, you know, Mayor Brad West was saying he'd like to see that for the rest of the region. What thought has Vancouver put into this? Like, what are we doing on this ride-hailing issue?
2: Well, I was the one councillor that voted against implementing um, uh, the sort of Vancouver model, as we called it, for rideshare, because I thought we should develop a municipal framework, what Vancouver did. Um, And it's important to remember, too, that rideshare companies can operate throughout the province in any cities they choose based on the provincial legislation without any municipality putting any um, other regulations in place. So where municipalities start to put regulations is things around traffic flow and management, use of curbs, those kinds of things. What Vancouver decided to do is charge a fee to each of the ride companies, but then also charge a fee per driver um, and set boundaries. It's very reminiscent of the taxi system where we had artificial boundaries. And I voted against that for a couple of reasons. One, you've got people out there trying to earn the next, some extra money earn a living. We've been talking about affordability. So if you're that part-time driver and Vancouver's going to charge you an extra hundred bucks per car, and you're going to take a fare and take somebody home to Surrey or Burnaby, Or Coquitlam, um, you're going to have to, are you going to have to pay that $100 in every single municipality? It just doesn't make sense. And I think it's going to be an inhibitor. So I supported taking time to implement a municipal model and have that conversation. um, And I think that that's what we should have done. There was no rush to put that in place. We could have launched Rideshare, got a sense of how it was going in the first six months to a year, and let the companies know that there would be a municipal model coming in place. sort of after the first year of operation um, and had those conversations. What we've done is jumped fast out of the gate and implemented this quote unquote Vancouver only model and without chatting and talking with our other municipal partners. And I think that's wrong.
0: Is there any way to revisit that? Like, do you think that might come up again?
2: Uh, Yeah, it is. It is harder to undo decisions in council once they have been made. Um, Usually I find that if we're finding that it's a challenge or if we're getting pushback from some of the other municipalities or it's just, you know, just not delivering the service, then right. um, the best way to do that is to hear from the public and put the pressure on council that they reopen it up.
0: All right, counselor, thank you so much for your time.
2: No worries. Have a great day.
0: That is Sarah Kirby Young, Vancouver City Councilor, talking about property tax increases. Lots of people still without power today because of the wind that came through last night. In fact, there is still a wind warning up for parts of the south coast, including Surrey, Langley, Fraser Valley, Greater Victoria, Howe Sound, Southern Gulf Islands. Uh, we are in for a bit of an unsettled day or two. Let's get more details on this now with the help of Global BC Chief Meteorologist Mark Madriga. Hi, Mark.
7: Hello, Simi. Good morning. How are you today?
0: I am good, thank you. Well, the power's on at my house, so I'm, I'm okay. <laughs> but let's talk about yes. what's going on out there.
7: Well, uh, a bit of a surprise this morning in that North Vancouver areas close to the mountains were hit pretty hard overnight for at least a couple of hours. Uh, we don't have a lot of weather stations in there, uh, but I noticed uh, the ones we do have uh, came up uh, to, well, uh, some pretty uh, significant significant gusts overnight for a little while. Uh, typically, those areas don't get hit hard when we get the outflow condition. It's more the Fraser Valley, southern sections of Metro Vancouver, where we're concentrating on those winds now and onward, but over night. Yes, a blast. It looks like it uh, came straight in from the north, either through the gaps in the mountains or even over the mountains and slammed into North Vancouver and those downed trees and power outages. The winds came down there this morning, still a bit gusty, but again, the main emphasis now is Fraser Valley, as you mentioned, southern sections of Metro Vancouver, closer to the border that are in the path of the Fraser Valley right. winds coming out of the northeast. Yeah, the, the typical situation. Victoria is in that path, the southern Gulf Islands. how Sound as well, still getting those strong winds coming out of the north. But uh, the, um, the the winds will continue for the afternoon and possibly as high as 80 to 90 kilometers an hour in parts of the Fraser Valley in the areas I mentioned, uh, and then coming down a bit later today and tonight to more like gusts to 60 kilometers an hour, which is still a strong wind, uh, and the same tomorrow, about 60K to gust in the morning and coming down a bit during the day. So it's now through the afternoon, potentially some damaging winds and more power outages and especially for our listeners in the Fraser Valley, Simmy.
0: Okay, that sounds very, very chilly out there, but yeah. it also sounds like you didn't say the S word, so I think that that's okay, no. right? <laughs>
7: That's right yeah we're a lot drier in fact it's the humidity is very low there was no the temperatures were a bit above freezing this morning um, but certainly no frost it was too dry for that even because uh, it, there's just not enough moisture and also uh, no fog of course and no precipitation We did get some cloud move in this morning but it's far too dry down here at ground level for any precipitation to make it down and we'll continue to clear through the day anyway but you'll notice that very very dry air and low humidity for the next few days and it will get colder as that wind uh, eases Is by later tomorrow and into Friday Saturday and the first part of Sunday that'll allow the temperatures to drop at ground level. Uh, We're going to have some wind chill issues over the next couple of days but uh, with that wind dying out uh, eventually our actual air temperatures will drop to about minus 5 by Friday, Saturday mornings and if you're listening in the Kamloops area that wind is a strong one coming out of the west this afternoon, heading into this afternoon and your temperatures are on the decline as well, down to uh, minus uh, 10 tonight with a wind chill close to minus 20 in Kamloops, and the cold spell will last in there, but with decreasing winds uh, right through Friday, Saturday, Sunday.
0: Should we consider ourselves lucky, Mark, given what we're seeing happening in other parts of the country at this point?
7: Uh, yeah, I suppose so. It is colder in uh, in other parts of the nation, especially the western part of Canada. Um, but our temperatures are definitely headed downward uh, all across southern and central BC. It's just a bit slower in Vancouver and vicinity. It's more the wind that's the issue. And we're going to be well below average by uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday for temperature. Uh, again, back to the Thompson Valley, the Kamloops area, oh, about eight or nine degrees or 10 degrees below average is what we're heading into there but not record-breaking and again I go back to that year 1985 which was the coldest of them all the record low in Kamloops in 85 was minus 28 on this day we're nowhere near that Vancouver our record low in 1985 on this date was minus 14 this morning it was plus two so it could be a lot colder but it's cold enough for most of us
0: small blessings Mark small blessings all right thank you very much for that
7: Th- Thank you.
0: That is Mark our Global BC me- Chief Meteorologist, reminding us it could always be worse. Yes, it's cold out there. Yes, it's windy and some people might lose power. But remember, it could always be worse just take a look at some of the temperatures and conditions that other parts of the country are going to be getting in the next 24 hours or so. I mean, Gore McDonald was telling us earlier that in the southern part of Alberta in and around Calgary, uh, they're looking at up to 50, like five zero centimeters of snow. They've already been having snow and serious amounts of it for the last month or so. So yeah, it could be worse. Enjoy the sunshine. It's going to get windy though. Much of the day that is in the forecast, a wind warning is up, as I mentioned, for parts of the south coast, and that includes Surrey, Langley, Fraser Valley, Greater Victoria, Howe Sound, Southern Gulf Islands. Watch out for that. It's going to feel even colder out there because of that wind chill. Going to take a moment here, talk a little hockey, talk a little NHL in particular, because the league is investigating allegations that the Calgary Flames coach, Bill Peters, directed racial slurs toward Akeem Aliu, a Nigerian-born player who was playing for Bill Peters at the time. Now they say this happened a decade ago while the two were in the minors. Now the NHL on Tuesday used some pretty strong words to describe this alleged behavior. They called it repugnant and unacceptable. And the league saying they will have no further comment until it looks into what happened more thoroughly. And this all started with some tweets. The firing of Mike Babcock last week from the Toronto Maple Leafs kind of opened the floodgates of younger players in particular talking about their experiences, not just with Mike Babcock, but other coaches who they felt uh, abused them in some ways, like emotionally and the way that they were treated. And so they've been opening up and talking about that. And so in this case, Elio alleged that Peters dropped the N-bomb several times at him in 2009 and 2010 during his first full season with the American Hockey League affiliate of the Chicago Blackhawks. He then said that Peters arranged for his demotion to the East Coast Hockey League, after All You Complained. Well, the general manager of the Calgary Flames was pretty quick to respond, saying the team is investigating the allegations that were raised on Monday on Twitter.
8: Bill has not been relieved of his duties. We are continuing this ongoing uh, investigation right now. Uh, we hope to have this completed quickly, but it's got to be thorough.
0: Now, he is still employed by the team at this point, but he will not be behind the bench. So he's not coaching, essentially, when the Calgary Flames visit the Buffalo Sabres tonight. Their associate coach, Jeff Ward, will be taking care of those duties. But what this has sparked is, and the reason why we're talking about it is, it has sparked all of this discussion online about the issue of what players have experienced, the abuse that they have experienced, that up until now, there's kind of been this code of silence about. And that's what we wanted to talk more about now with the help of our guest. Brian Wilson is with us, a contributing author with the Hockey Writers and covers the Calgary Flames. Brian, thanks for being here.
4: Thanks so much for having me on.
0: Uh, this really has gotten the entire hockey world and others talking, hasn't it?
4: Yeah, absolutely. Especially here in Calgary, but around the hockey world and I guess around the world in general, it's uh, it's a hot button issue and it seems to be something now that uh, we're dealing with here in Calgary.
0: And why do you think it is that would somehow the firing of Mike Babcock seemed to kind of break that dam open? Why do you think that
4: was? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, Mike Babcock is perhaps one of the you know, old school type coaches in the league and uh, Bill Peters is a, a protege of Mike Babcock as well so perhaps with you know uh, addressing the way that Mike Babcock went about his business maybe that as you said opened the floodgates a little bit for others to maybe be confident enough to talk about the way that they were treated and in this case for for Bill Peters it came from a, a tweet from Akeem Aliou who's a, a former player back in Rockford of the American Hockey League.
0: Right, and I know that some, I think TSN had reported that they had corroborated this as well, that several players backed him up, that that's what happened.
4: Yeah, that seems to be the case. I know there was a couple of stories that came out on TSN that were talking about former players with the Carolina Hurricanes as well. Uh, So, And there are some other players I've taken to Twitter to talk a little bit about their experiences. So it doesn't seem to be an isolated incident. It seems to be something that, uh, again, there's a lot more investigation going on right now. The Calgary Flames are involved in trying to do a thorough review. And, and as you mentioned at the start, they're not going to be talking to the media until they've completed that and really get the facts straight.
0: Now Brian, do you think this has something to do with like a younger generation in hockey just deciding they don't want to be treated like this anymore?
4: Well, they could be part of it. I know uh, for the last few years, uh, coaches have definitely taken a different approach in terms of how they operate their teams within the dressing room. It used to be a little bit more authoritarian. Now it's it's a lot more dealing with players on an individual basis, you know, based on their personalities. And and that might be a result of the way the culture has changed in the last few years. And right now it's about hockey and the the coaches and the way that they go about coaching as trying to catch up with that culture shift.
0: Yeah. Do you think as a league, that's what the NHL is trying to do because other leagues have certainly had their moments, right. And catching up is the NHL still a little bit behind the times.
4: Well, it seems like they're doing their best to, 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 be relevant as far as that's concerned and, and we're seeing events happen at least recently with more so with broadcasters but uh, it's happening around inside the game and uh, in the media side of things as well just about what's appropriate what's what's okay and and obviously the nhl has taken a firm stance as to where they are um where they're sitting is in regards to that it's uh, they're trying to build a an inclusive sport and make it open for everyone to to be a part of and enjoy so uh, that i guess takes a bit of um fine-tuning as far as what's acceptable and what's appropriate and how to move forward with that.
0: And what is this like for the Calgary Flames right now, having all of this swirling around them? Because originally they would have thought that, you know, the firing of Mike Bagpot didn't have anything to do with them.
4: Well, interestingly enough, when when he was fired, I know there were some whispers around Calgary that, you know, maybe he could come here, uh, which obviously is not going to be a good idea moving forward at this point. But um it was it's not been easy in calgary for this season hasn't gone the way they they like they're sitting eleven, twelve, and 4 right now 6th in the, the pacific division so they were looking to hopefully contend for a stanley cup so it's been pretty frustrating just in terms of on the ice product for the calgary flames um i know there's been whispers already as well that maybe might uh that uh the coach would be fired at some point as well and and with this new information going on. I don't know how that's not going to be a possibility, but uh, as will be mentioned, the flames trying to do their due diligence first off.
0: Yeah. So do you think it is inevitable at this point?
4: Well, again, I I don't see how (laughs) even for a public relations standpoint, they could keep the coach. Uh, I don't want to speculate at the moment, but as far as uh, you know, the mounting evidence that we're seeing come out, the, the different allegations against him, As far as uh, just how he's gone about coaching over the past few years, I don't see how the Flames would uh, want to continue on in that path, but we'll wait and see.
0: Do you see positives to come out of this? Like the idea to me, when I look at this, I think, well, you know what? Good for the players for speaking up on this, but how about you? Do you think there will be positives out of this?
4: I think uh, that's the best thing we can do is look for the positives in any type of situation like this. I really picked out one point from uh, Milan Lucic flames forward in an interview he did on Tuesday in Buffalo. He talked about how social media is giving everyone a voice, and mm-hmm. it's uh, it's allowing people to be empowered to speak out. And you know, if using social media allows you know oppressed people to speak out and to fight back against injustice, I think that's a powerful tool. Um, you know, at the same time, a tool misused can also be a weapon. So it's a bit of a fine line these days. But yeah. I think, uh, as far as a positive outcome, if it's encouraging people to speak up and encouraging. Uh, you know, the positive conversation to be had, I think that's okay.
0: All right, Brian, thanks so much for your time on this.
4: My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. That's
0: Brian Wilson, a contributing author with The Hockey Writers. He covers the Calgary Flames. Well, today we're talking once again about ride hailing still hasn't happened. We're still waiting. Remember a couple months ago when we were, oh, so positive it was going to happen by the holidays. Well, the holiday season just about upon us. And we're still waiting for the final go ahead from the passenger transportation board. Something else that's kind of thrown a bit of a wrench into the plans as well is listening to and finding out how all the different municipalities and cities are dealing with this situation as well. For instance, places like Surrey, the mayor there, Doug McCallum, says they don't want it, and so they don't want to see it there. And yet in Vancouver, they've got their own rules, and in other regions they have their other rules. But in the Tri-Cities, at least, they're doing something that they think every other municipality in Metro Vancouver should be doing, and that is working together to make it happen. So here's exactly what it is that they are doing. They've agreed to a unified licensing fee. And the mayor of Port Coquitlam, Brad West, says that that's going to work for the entire fleet across their three cities. Global News reporter Simon Little had a chance to speak with the mayor of Port Coquitlam, Brad West, and the mayor outlined what he would ultimately like to see happen right across Metro Vancouver.
1: Well, my hope and, and my my preference still is that there be a, a single Metro Vancouver business license for ride hailing. I, I just think that is absolute common sense. We shouldn't have 21 different licenses with 21 different fees and 21 different rules in Metro Vancouver for ride hailing. But in the absence of Metro Vancouver uh, coming out with a, a single unified business license, I felt it was important that at least in our part of the region in the Tri-Cities, we co- cooperate uh, between Port Coquitlam, Coquitlam, and Port Moody and have uh, a single uniform license, uh, really as a way of encouraging ride hailing, uh, Uber, and Lyft to operate in our communities.
0: So why are they taking these particular steps? Well, in Mayor West's view, the Tri-Cities are the area where ride hailing is needed the most. And I think there's a very good argument for that. And the way the licensing system is set up at the moment with drivers, you know, potentially needing separate licenses in each municipality, well, that meant that residents in the Tri-Cities would find it tough going.
1: The service, in my opinion, is most needed in a community like Port Coquitlam that doesn't have SkyTrain, and so I, I've lost count of the number of times I've heard horror stories from people, particularly younger people, who uh, get a SkyTrain back to Poco uh, at the end of an evening, and you know they can get to Braid Station or they can get to Coquitlam Centre, but really it's that last couple of kilometers to get to their home in Port Coquitlam, that's a real challenge. Uh, We all know uh, about taxis and the the difficulty and challenges that people have trying to utilize that service. And so I I think ride hailing uh, is going to be most beneficial to a community like Port Coquitlam, where people are trying to uh, connect into the the overall transit system and really, you know, primarily connect to rapid transit. Um, And so um, I am concerned that by having a fractured system throughout the region, you know, you're going to make it really challenging, um, for ride hailing to actually be able to operate. And on paper and in theory, it can operate. But it, I mean, I think about it this way. If you're a driver and you have to pay, you know, 21 different fees, uh, to pick up and drop off in the 21 different municipalities in Metro Vancouver, what you're probably going to do is pay the fee to operate in Vancouver, maybe Richmond, so you can access the airport, and that'll be about it. And it will be uh, suburban communities like Port Coquitlam that will, will pay the price for that. And so I've been a really strong advocate at the Mayor's Council for the region to get its act together. I think that's what the public expects of us. This isn't rocket science, and we should be able, as a region, to sit down and have a single unified municipal business license for ride hailing. Now, obviously, uh, the city of Vancouver went ahead with uh, their own uh, fee, um, a a fee that if was replicated by every other municipality in Metro Vancouver, would basically make ride hailing um, financially impossible. Um, And so I'm I'm really proud that in the tri-cities, We've taken a different approach. Um, I think we're trying to establish a model or a template that the entire region should adopt, in my opinion. And it's, uh, it's, it's very straightforward. It's not a bunch of red tape. It's not a bunch of huge fees. It was really done with a mind to how can we ensure that the service is actually available for people in our community.
0: That is Port Coquitlam Mayor Brad West talking about the fact that the tri-cities, Coquitlam, Port Coquitlam, and Port Moody, got together to have a tri-city licensing system for ride hailing. And he went further. He said that their licensing model that they decided on is better than the one that is being brought about in the city of Vancouver.
1: In Vancouver, there's a $100 per vehicle fee. So every vehicle that signs up um, to drive with Uber, Lyft, or another ride-hailing company has to pay the $100 fee. There's a $0.30 cent per pickup and per drop-off fee between the hours of 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. And then there's also an additional surcharge in uh, for operating in the downtown core. Uh, in contrast, what we've done in the Tri-Cities is we've said one license, covers the entire fleet so it's not a per vehicle fee it's one license for uber one license for lyft maybe one license for whatever other companies may come forward and that covers all of the vehicles driving for them for the entire tri-cities and then we've also uh, actually not proposed but accepted a proposal from uber and lyft that they pay a 10 cent per pickup fee for the Tri-Cities. So if they pick up someone from Coquitlam, Port Coquitlam, or Port Moody, Uber or Lyft would pay a $0.10 fee to the municipalities for that pickup. And that was something that they actually proposed and we accepted. But what we also did was we said, we're going to exempt vehicles from paying that pickup fee if there is zero-emission vehicle or if they're an accessible vehicle, which is sort of a way to incentivize Uh, two things that we think are pretty important.
0: That's Mayor Brad West from Port Coquitlam talking about the model that the Tri-Cities are adopting when it comes to ride hailing. They are working together, Port Coquitlam, Coquitlam, and Port Moody. Right now, they are the only municipalities that are working together on this issue in Metro Vancouver. And I, I really actually don't understand how Metro Vancouver mayors couldn't get their act together on this one. Because it's not like we haven't been talking about this for years, right? And that in the literal sense, for years... And not like they don't have endless Metro Vancouver regional meetings where they could have talked about this, where they could have brought it up. And if they had actually done something in advance, they would have been applauded for getting their act together. But no, no, once again, we are still waiting for mayors to get their act together on this. So Vancouver went their own way in dealing with this, as we just heard there. We heard that from Sarah Kirby Young earlier. Uh, Tri-Cities have gotten their act together, so they're doing their thing. Surrey? still waiting because we know the mayor Doug McCallum there said he doesn't even want it there. Richmond, don't know yet. Delta, what are they going to do? So there's still all these other regions where you're like, Hey, sooner or later, this thing is coming. We're hoping any day now to get the approval from the passenger transportation board. How is your municipality dealing with this? Well, today soon you are going to be talking about an alert that comes through on your phone, which is why we want you to know about it in advance. It's going to happen at 1.55, so about an hour and 20 minutes from now, you will likely get this text on your phone from alert ready. This is a practice run, okay? You're going to hear it plus on this station right now that you're listening to, on on your cell phone and on your TV at, again, 1.55. This test, it's going to say... This is a test of the British Columbia emergency alerting system issued by Emergency Management British Columbia. This is only a test. If this had been an actual emergency or threat, you would now hear instructions that would assist you to protect you and your family. For further information, go to emergencyinfo.bc.gov.bc.ca. This is only a test. No action is required. That is what it is going to say. If you listen to it on the radio or see it on TV, it's also going to make a really irritating loud noise designed to make you pay attention, okay? It's a very important part of kind of testing to make sure that people are aware in the event of an emergency. So we thought, okay, well, that's one way to do that. But what else are we doing to make sure that we are ready in case of an emergency? Well, joining us now is Jackie Kluserbor, who's the Emergency Planning Coordinator with the City of Vancouver. Jackie, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, happy to be here. Is this like an ongoing struggle to get this word out to people? Like, are we good at preparing for emergencies or not?
9: I think there's always a lot more that can be done. There's estimates that roughly, you know, 30% of our population has plans in place. And we live in an area that can be impacted by a number of different events. And it's critical that we're prepared.
0: Okay. In what way do you think the average household needs to be prepared?
9: People have to think about their families and, you know, what would happen if you work downtown Vancouver and there's an earthquake, you live over on the North Shore or you live out in Maple Ridge, how are you going to get home? Roads and bridges may be closed. What's going to happen to your family and pets? And this is what we all need to be thinking about. How are we going to handle that when we're faced with it? And the time to do it is now before we are faced with an earthquake or disaster.
0: Right. That's, I think, I don't know, Jackie, I feel like people don't want to think about that, right? They would rather believe it's not going to happen.
9: <laughs> I think most people do. But, you know, the reality is it can happen. It does happen. And being prepared is going to help get you through. And, you know, we need to develop these plans and get the supplies that we need. It's not difficult to do It's you know, takes a little bit of time and effort, but we do need to be prepared.
0: Okay, so then we have this information. We know what we should be doing. What What is on that list? Like, if you can give us a couple of things, what should we check off?
9: A couple of the key things is how are you going to connect with your family? They're your number one concern. What supplies do you need to survive? If you work downtown Vancouver, you know, what supplies have you got if you can't get home? If you have a home emergency kit and your family's at home, you'll know they have the supplies to get through. If you practice what to do in an earthquake, you will take, you know, the right action. And, you know, a lot of injuries in an earthquake happen because people have done the wrong thing. So, and think about your pets. What's going to happen to your pets? You know, how will you get your kids from school? And just run through the list, and you know, start thinking about it. Talk to your family, and that's going to significantly increase, you know, improve how you live after the event happens. And we even see it with simple house fires when people have to evacuate. People who come out with an emergency kit get through it much better. They have copies of their ID, copies of their insurance, and things like that. And it makes it a lot simpler for the family involved.
0: I was also thinking, too, that if you have younger children, like primary school age children, elementary school kids, this is something you work on. I think I was a lot better prepared for this when my kids were in that age group.
9: Exactly. We all are. And then, you know, once the kids grow up, we start to forget about it. Totally. We don't check our supplies. And, you know, we've got to... We've got to know, you know, we know we live in an area that can be impacted and we've got to take it seriously.
0: All right. So what about food supplies? Is that something we encourage people to keep as well?
9: Definitely food and also water. You know, we can go a few days without food, but we can't survive without water. So having water, you know, stored at home, having some water in your car, if you drive, you know, having that in place is critical.
0: Right. And so keeping water and things sort like, where's the best location for all of that?
9: It really depends. We all, you know, some of us live in apartments, some of us are in houses. You just got to identify an area where you store your emergency supplies. They need to be easy to access. You know, if you live in an apartment, usually the closet by the front door makes the most sense. In a house, you've got a little, you know, few more options, but the key is, can you easily access them? If they're stored in your garage, don't store chemicals above them in case the chemicals fall over and contaminate your kit. So a little bit of thought needs to go into it. City of Vancouver, Emergency Management BC all have websites with all of that information listed, and it's very easy to access. City of Vancouver also offers free courses at our community centres or if you have a group of people, we will come and, you know, do it for your group as well. So you have options out there. You've just got to take the action and start getting prepared.
0: I wonder as well, Jackie, do you think people get lulled into thinking, oh, well, the city's going to help me or the government's going to help me? What kind of help, though, can we realistically expect after an emergency event?
9: What people need to realize in the first, you know, 72 hours or so after a big event happens, you know, we have families as well, you know, the emergency planners, the responders, you know, we need to make sure our families are okay, then we will start to go to work, but, you know, we can't help everybody, and it really comes down to each individual person taking responsibility for themselves and their families, and, You know, if we don't do it, how are we going to feel when facing an earthquake? And how will we explain that to our
0: families? So true. Jackie, thank you very much for your time. Happy to be here. Thank you. That is Jackie Klusterboro, who's the Emergency Planning Coordinator with the City of Vancouver. A couple of things about this next story really interested me as I was watching it unfold today. One, it's a big change in how we regulate certain professions in the province. So what the government has announced today is that they are looking at cutting the number of regulatory colleges that oversee health professionals. Right now, there's about 20 of them looking after all different aspects, right? Whether it's the College of Physicians and uh, Surgeons or the College of Pharmacists or the, I mean, you name it, essentially. So they're looking at taking 20 of them and cutting that down to five. Yeah, that is a drastic cut. Now, Health Minister Adrian Dick says among those five would be the College of Physicians and Surgeons, the College of Pharmacists, and the College of Nursing Professionals. So those three will remain intact. The final two, though, would be two new consolidated colleges, including what's called an oral health college, it's looking after dental dentists, orthodontists, that kind of thing, and the Healthcare Professions College. Here's what he had to say.
5: I want to be clear that consolidating the colleges means that the professions will be regulated more thoroughly and that we're going to continue regulating the same number of uh, professions. This is not deregulation. That won't change.
0: That is Health Minister Adrian Dix. They're talking about this at the press conference that they had today. So that's one of the reasons why that story interested me. The other reason why is that when I was following along with the press conference that they were having today, I noticed something really interesting, that the entire committee that had been discussing this was at this press conference. And the steering committee consisted of Health Minister Adrian Dix, Green Party MLA, Sonia Furstenau, and... Norm Letnick, who is the B.C. Liberal MLA and healthcare critic for the opposition, all three of them together at the press conference talking about this major change. And I thought, well, that's great. We often say that we would love to see our politicians do more about like kind of crossing the aisle and working together on big issues. And this certainly looks like one of those issues where they did exactly that, because this is a big change for all of those professions out there to go from 20 different regulatory colleges down to five. Now, some people may have a lot of questions about that, right? About how do you deal with complaints? Will this be effective in dealing with those complaints? What are all the rules around that? Well, for now, we're going to talk more about that with the help of our Global News online legislative reporter who joins us now, Richard Zussman. Hi, Richard. Hi, Samit. So this was really interesting that you had Norm Letnick, Sonia First Now, and Adrian Dix there.
8: Yeah, and they've been working together through this entire process. This is, as you were describing, a pretty complicated process around the colleges, what they do. A lot of this also is based around complaints, uh, complaints from the public, especially that deals with uh, pharmacists or doctors or naturopaths or anything tangentially related to our healthcare system. And the three of them, Adrian Dix has said all along through this process, he wanted it to be collaborative. He wanted to ensure that every voice was equal on the steering committee. He said today that, you know, some of these ideas came from him. Some came from Sonia Furstenau. Some came from Norman Letnick, but that they come as a Unified voice when presented to the public today.
0: You know, Richard, a lot of people out there like me would be like, why can't they do stuff like this more often? You know?
8: (laughs) and I think, you know, covering this on a day-to-day basis, I feel the same way, Simi. Like, it's, it would be, you know, and we're getting to a point now with the agreement that's in place with the NDP and the Greens. We're seeing more and more of this collaboration, but often partisan politics gets in the way. But it is nice to see that three MLAs from different parties, from different backgrounds can come and share the information they have from their communities or from the stakeholders they've spoken to and use that information to create a plan that they believe can best address the concerns of British. Columbians, because a lot of this is driven towards individuals, British Columbians who have issues uh, with, um, you know, work that's being done by members of these colleges. Because in the past, the colleges have basically been governed by themselves. The board has been members of the colleges, and it's often very hard to get any accountability around complaints that are filed. One of the suggestions that was made part of the steering committee is to change the breakdown of the boards for these colleges, splitting it between actual members of the colleges and members of the public. So you have, I think, a greater sense of what the public is looking for out of these colleges.
0: Oh, that's good. Okay. So, so there's 5 from 20 right they're going to yep. cut it down to 5 some of them will remain intact college of physicians and surgeons college of pharmacists college of nursing professionals so you you kind of alluded to this but how is the makeup of these boards going to change
8: yeah and so that was a question i posed as well to minister dix because one of the things i brought up is you know some of these mid-sized colleges may get engulfed by the larger colleges and have their views looked at. And he said, well, each of these organizations also have regulatory bodies. So there's the Doctors of BC, which is an advocacy group for the doctors. There's also a college which governs uh, their uh, behavior and the work that they do. So they're two separate things. The governing bodies will still exist. The regulatory body, the colleges who oversee the work, they're just getting streamlined. And he said in the UK, there are... Less colleges than there are in BC, and that governs a country of more than 55 million people. And so he says it's bloated right now in British Columbia. The streamlining will help it become more efficient, help it become more practical, and allow for greater accountability to the public. So uh, he broke down a little bit to me. I can't remember specifically which colleges were going where, but he says that there is a path to determine, and they're going to have to work with the colleges to ensure they want to be lumped in in certain ways, but there is a path to get to the five and which organizations and which members are included in each of those groups.
0: And so how soon is all this going to happen?
8: So this is a process that is now going to go to consultation. So, And and one of the things that was acknowledged by Norm Letnick was that, you know, the first phase of consultation, it's stakeholders who express their issues, and it's going to be members of the public who have no doubt had issues with colleges or have had to file complaints. So the public consultation runs from now until January 10th of 2020, and then following the consultation, uh, the, the committee will look at that information and start implementing the changes after that. But the expectation would be, this is something that will start being put into place next year.
0: Okay, so next year. On another topic, is there a bit of a sigh of relief going around the NDP government today about the transit <laughs> strike situation?
8: I think big time. I, and I think it's one of those things where Premier John Horgan had said all along he wanted to see a deal reached at the table. It's done at the table, but this would have been a massive political mess for the government. You yeah. know, they're seen as one that has strong relationships with unions and labor, and, but Obviously, you would have heard from a lot of members of the public who would have had a hard time getting around today, tomorrow and Friday, if bus service wasn't running. So I think it's a big sigh of relief. The legislative session ends tomorrow. I was describing on John McComb on Monday, the premier just wanted to put a knee down and get to the end of the game and get out of here. (laughs) Get clean. Get out clean. Yeah. And it seems like that is going, you know, things in Victoria have a way of, you know, jumping up and surprising you but i think the premier may get his wish and get to knockwood uh without any major uh, fires that he needs to put out i don't know richard there's one more day knock wood <laughs> on
0: that on that note though the other thing we should mention is that the indigenous rights legislation there's been a lot of cooperation on that as well and i was here like reading about you know from keith baldry and Vaughn palmer saying that the, the debate about it has been very respectful and it's moving forward
8: Yeah, and I think it's one of those things where a unanimous message around the support of the UNDRIP legislation uh, is a really symbolic and important one to send to British Columbians and to the rest of Canada as BC becomes the first jurisdiction uh, to pass UNDRIP legislation. The, The opposition raised some questions around UNDRIP itself and the origins of it and the applications to British Columbia. But ultimately, it sends a very powerful message around reconciliation and BC moving forward in a way that all legislation will now be looked at under a scope of uh, indigenous communities and First Nations communities. And I think the British Columbians and this government, I know, is very proud of of what they've accomplished here.
0: Right. And they had some help with that, right? Opposition moved it along and that's going to make
8: it through. Yep, yeah, it's one of those things. It was passed last night. It's done now. Uh, it will officially, the lieutenant governor will pay a visit to the building tomorrow and officially sign off on it. Uh, but all the debating is done. And, you know, there was talk, rumors that uh, the liberals could play this out and uh, leave it. Until the new year and they obviously decided not to do that.
0: Right. Okay. So that's good. I know on a final note here, Richard, before we let you go, uh, let's talk ride hailing because that's also a hot topic for us today. We thought we were going to have it by the holidays. Could have sworn that the <laughs> premier and the government told us that. And now where are we at?
8: So I've been calling around about this today. Ah, because okay. we're getting to the end of November. Yes. I've made it the, the ball is in the court of the passenger transportation board. They are independent. We have had a really hard time communicating with them and getting information from the PTB. I've left a message, a few of them I have not heard back. So we don't know yet when the PTB is going to hand out those licenses. I also spoke to a major ride sharing company today as well. And what I can pass on about that is the expectation is once the company gets its license, they will be able to move very quickly in order to get uh, cars on the road. What I was told was it could be a matter of a few business days from getting the license approved. Uh, There are still a few steps around getting business licenses in the municipalities you are going to operate in. Uh, There's also still an issue with the insurance from ICBC But the person I spoke to said it would take a few days. So saying all of that, we could still have the PTB handing out these licenses in a few weeks' time, mid-December, and have ride-sharing on the road before Christmas. The province, I'm sure you've noticed and our listeners have noticed, have changed their language a bit on this. For a long time, it was before the holiday season, and now it's before the end of the year. I wonder... You know, are we going to see the approvals come in on December 18th or 19th heading into a weekend and then into the week of Christmas and only have ride sharing possibly on New Year's Eve? That we'll have to wait and see. But... We still don't have a definitive answer from the PTB on when they are going to be able to give out these licenses. But the province is still insisting that it will be enough time to allow these companies to operate by the end of the year.
0: Well, it's going to give us something to talk about over the next sure couple thing. of weeks, Richard. Yeah, I love
8: talking about it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks, me That is Richard Zussman, of course, our Global News Online legislative reporter.